Hello and welcome to episode 107 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Oladji. And I'm Peter Lim. And our very special guest today is Amadou Sani, Professor of Middle Eastern and African Studies at the Lagos State University in Nigeria, with particular interest in intellectual heritage and literary studies of these areas. He obtained his PhD from SOAS in London and has over 170 publications to his credit. He's a member of several learned societies, including the Royal Asiatic Society of Great Britain and Ireland and the British Society for Middle Eastern Studies. He served as a visiting professor to many foreign universities and a consultant to several journals and publishing houses. Uh, welcome, Dr. Sunny. Thank you very much, Peter. involved with the very exciting Timbuktu Manuscripts project, and you visited Timbuktu and uh, worked there with the South African-led group, I think with Professor Shamir Jepi at the University of Cape Town. Um, This was before the insurgency in northern Mali and the great crisis there. Can you tell us about your involvement in the project? And I'm particularly interested in what it was like to go into those private homes and collections to look at the documents and then try to preserve them. Yeah, thank you very much. I think the starting point uh, was that the enthusiasm shown by the South African government since the time of Tabo Mbeki, of course, which regime was actually the moving spirit for the whole entire thing, and the idea of Nigeria having a similar problem of preserving past materials or records, archival materials and manuscripts as sources of new knowledge. That was the initial stage that, okay, how do you use manuscripts as sources of new knowledge for indigenous Africans, something like that. So, and I was involved in the Nigerian aspect of that thing with what we call the Arewa project. Arewa is in the northern part of Nigeria. It's Arewa House. Exactly. Yes. In fact, that is the, the, the cultural and research center in, mm. uh, in the northern part of Nigeria. And it's based residence of the former prime minister of Nigeria. So I was involved in this project of digitization of Arewa House manuscripts. And uh, through that, Abdul Qadir Haidara, who was uh, the man in charge of the uh, Mali Timbuktu something, came there. So that was how I got involved in the entire exercise. So there, there was this uh, coalition of interest. Mm. And uh, so when there was this workshop in uh, Timbuktu, 2011 or 2012, I can't remember exactly. So I was part of the group that went there, saw the enormous amount of materials in private homes. And of course, the way the Timbuktu Manuscript Project has been able to assist the uh, local people in conserving and preserving their repositories within their homes without necessarily taking those materials from them. So we were in Jenny, we were in Gao, and uh, in Timbuktu. So that's uh, how I got For involved. those listeners who don't know, who aren't academic specialists, how old are these manuscripts that we're talking about? Well, you see, the manuscripts we are talking about, roughly you can say about 300 to 400 years old. And uh, there was also this tradition of copying. It's more or less like a family tradition, a tradition passing it over to another generation, and it was kept and revered as uh, possessions that the people don't toy with. So at a point in time, all those things were buried underground because of the political turmoil. So uh, when there was this kind of new awareness, okay, we can assist you to preserve your this thing without actually taking them away from you. So there was that movement now to establish, uh, to train locals as to how they can best manage their own materials without necessarily losing possession of them. 
And the technological aspect of the partnership must have been really interesting, but also possibly complicated. I mean, you know, this local capacitation is absolutely critical and vital to the success of the project. But how do you go about doing this in such an environment on the fringes of the desert, you know, bringing scanners and training people who may not be initially well versed in the technologies and these documents themselves very fragile. Right, exactly. Well, I think the first thing that Bokto Manage Project was able to do was to have his own building and to have his own materials, uh, scanners, computers, and stuff like that in a very massive uh, building. Some of those materials that could have gotten lost were brought there and then digital kept, I mean, the safety was kept safe first in the first instance. And then there was then the second stage of selecting which of those materials you want to digitize first. I mean, you cannot, we have thousands and thousands of materials and how do you decide which one to, of course they are all important, but you have to make a sort of a gradation as to which one you want to do first. So the one, the, the decision was that, okay, those that had direct bearing on the history of the place should be the ones to be digitized first so that it will serve as a mm -hmm. continuum or a source of history for the region. Meanwhile, for the locals, it was a sort of series of training that were organized for them to come there. And I was also involved in the restoration exercise. I mean, some of them are getting so fragile, brittle, and things like that. So how do you mend them? And I think at a point in time, some Gulf governments were able to assist in setting up uh, some sort of mechanism for the repair of the manuscript. Uh, and I, I should also say that at a point in time, around 2011 or so, the United States ambassador to Nigeria was very passionate about manuscripts. In fact, he was the one who organized the Ariwa House Conference for Nigerian Manuscripts. But once he left, the enthusiasm just died out again. We, we, we often hear about the Timbuktu project. Uh, it's quite widely known, amongst, particularly amongst Africanists and those interested in Africa. But we uh, more broadly don't often hear about Arawa House, but it is, as, as you mentioned, it's a really significant centre. Could you just um, talk a little about the significance of Nigerian-based uh, manuscripts in, in African languages, in, in Arabic, in Ajami, in Hausa, and uh, what sort of advances have been made at Arawa House and, and maybe your own university or others? Yeah, I think there is one particular American lady I want to mention, Michael Biddle. Uh, she's been very much involved in preservation of Nigerian manuscript tradition, man, uh, manuscript heritage, especially those in the north, in this Jos, for example. Mm. Uh, there was a Luca project as Aluka, well, yes, yes. which also assisted in the recovery and retrieval of some of the material. But and, and there was a recently a terrible fire in Jos at the university library, and that just underlines how yeah, vital it is uh, to uh, do this work. Exactly. So uh, I think the problem we have is that there's little to enthusiasm or institutional encouragement at the Nigerian level for the preservation of uh, manuscripts. That's one major point. There is this lukewarm attitude to this kind of thing. People don't seem to realize, the government, let me put, the government doesn't seem to realize the importance of this stuff. And uh, it's unfortunate that uh, the thing remains because these materials, in fact, some of the rare materials that were collected in the 50s and 60s by Kensdale, by several other Western scholars, uh, as we have now, for example, in, at the University of Ibadan, they are almost uh, getting out of uh, existence now, either due to poor preservation or due to lack of uh, institutional interest or things like that. And we have quite massive number of, a large number of uh, 
Marcy Collusion, not only in Ariwa House, but also Southern Ibadan there in Nigeria. And there might even be some practical applications of some of this work. You were showing me earlier one of the first, or perhaps the first, collaboration between Islamic and Christian yeah. scholars. Yeah. And this was a an Arabic uh, Yoruba yeah, version. Yeah. yeah. Interestingly, you see, there was this man called Reverend Thomas Ogumbi, one of the early CM Church Missionary Societies of Nigeria's uh, officials, and collaborated with uh, one of the leading Muslim scholars in the late 19th centuries then, by name Idris Animation from Lagos. So they jointly translated the Quran, chapter 12 to be precise, into Yoruba, and also the Lord's Prayer in Arabic. So they, they have quite this kind of materials as well that are still there. They are not being exploited or explored at the moment. Quite a large number of materials uh, in local language, in Ajami, Yoruba Ajami, and uh, also Ajami as well. And I think what the world needs to do now is that maybe either through UNESCO or some institution or something that we should find a way of securing these materials first. Have an inventory. Let us actually know what do we have in the first instance, mm. in terms of cataloging or entry or, or word list or whatever. Let's have an idea of what they are. And one thing I've always emphasized is that Universities or institutions or places where we have these materials should encourage their students to do their research project on these things. So it's a way through editing, translation. So once those things are done, then you are able to secure the lives of, uh, of those materials. So, and I think there's going to be there's need for that institutional uh, sort of uh, program to ensure that, I mean, we don't just keep them for whatever they are worth, but also made to be objects of study. And one scholar who spent a lifetime working on all of those uh, important issues of cataloguing and uh, studying the history, the importance, the calligraphy, etc., was John Hunwick, oh. the late John Hunwick. And you yourself have been involved in a series of panels at the African Studies Association annual meeting. Could you talk about the, these themes that you talked about in Washington? Yes, uh, the Hunwick panel, actually, Hunwick was... Uh, known as the Sheikh in in, in, in the Af in West African country, and in, in my interest with that in Mali, in Tibet, to be precise, there's John Hunwick cl fan club there yeah. among the locals there. I mean, he was highly respected because of his passion and love for, and uh, his own adopted name was Abdul Razak. Many people didn't know that his name was Abdul Razak. He loved that name very much. Now, to, uh, coming to the the his valedictory lecture given in Ibadan, to be precise in 2008, 28th of uh, April 2008. So it was a sort of a resume of his entire life and dedication to the heritage, that Africa is not only about music and song and dance. There is this massive intellectual heritage in Africa that needs to be explored, needs to be documented, needs to be studied, so that people, that the idea of Africa being a dark something was never true. And uh, it's been able to do through this Arabic literature of Africa project, what we call the ALA. And from 1993 to 2016, this year, five volumes from this series have come out. And incidentally, I've been involved in, in fact, I've reviewed all the volumes. They've talked about 4,554 4, pages in all. It's a lot of reviewing work. <laughs> <laughs> so the entire work. The last volume, which was by Charles Stewart, won the uh, Conor Conor Award. Award, yeah, which is one of the prestigious something that uh, African Study Association actually uh, takes care of. So it's a massive thing, really. And I think, uh, and there, it, it, it might interest to know that it is even more like uh, an ongoing project because 
each time a volume is released or is published, you discover that there are still more and more within that geographical area, even right from the first volume, which was in 1993. So no sooner that was done that they discovered, okay, there were still more materials in this regard in that particular Sudan that they were actually able to cover. And tomorrow at the African Studies Center at Michigan State University, you're going to give a different kind of talk that looks at the intellectual history of uh, Africa. And the title of your presentation is How Dark Was Africa Before Europe? The Past Perfect Orality, the Present Imperfect Literacy, and the Future Lecture Oral. Can you tell us a bit about this presentation and its significance? Well, what inspired my choice of this was that when I got this last copy of the Arabic literature of Africa something, 2,500 and something pages by Charles Stewart, the series, and I was able to see that over 1,875 authors covering the last about 400 years were able to do some original works or what we call derivative work and things like that. And I put this side by side by the stereotype that from Hegel that, okay, mm. Africa was a dark continent. Well, it's Africa proper. And I was, which one is Africa proper? Meaning that Africa south of the Sahara, Egypt and whatever. I mean, yeah. decapitated yeah. Africa. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> so to say. And uh, I now started to see that actually, as a matter of fact, both in East Africa and West Africa, we have records of what I would call literacy traditions. I mean, it doesn't have to be in the Roman alphabet or whatever. Was this really a dark continent? Because the idea of a dark continent was one by one of the American, Stanley, American uh, journalist who wrote a book in 1870-something that uh, through the dark continent of uh, mm-hmm. Africa. Mm-hmm. So, and I now say, okay, well, this wouldn't have gotten this right. Then again, the French, Maurice uh, de, de la Fosse, was saying that he came across some Ajami literature in Hausa and Fulfude, and you saw the thing that this that the two languages were written in Arabic character. And he said, no, no, this cannot be literature because uh, the kind of Arabic they are using is bastard Arabic. And I said, wow. So, and that one informed my idea, okay. And knowing that Africa by its own very nature was essentially an oral sort of community. So I now tried to examine that, okay, trace back how far in history can we go to actually establish that Africa was actually literate in terms of writing. I mean, it doesn't have to be in Latin character. Very, very much so. Yes, yeah. yes, and, this and, is hu- and, hugely important, uh-huh. really, isn't it? And, and that is the thing. Then again, the, I discovered that the oldest written uh, form of Arabic in Nigeria, interestingly, the oldest history of the Yoruba, southwestern Nigeria, in the 17th century, was written in the Yoruba language, but with Arabic character, 17th century. Again, I discovered that the oldest written Yoruba material in contemporary time uh, did, uh, belongs to the 19th century by a man from Ilori called Badamasi. In fact, I'm going to read some, one of his illustrations tomorrow. And one of the great-grandchildren, I got him to recite the material to me about 20 years ago, thereabout. He died earlier this year. So this so just to show that Africa was not dark at all. I mean, that is the thing that Africa was never dark before European colonialism. As a matter of fact, one of the evidences, a piece of evidence to show is that even before Oxford or Cambridge came to be known as seats of learning, whatever, Africa and indeed Sankore University, as we know it, has been producing uh, scholars and uh, students from across the West Africa, even beyond. So that's one thing I actually trying to establish. And this is opening up uh, a lot of new areas for, for scholars, for 
for building the reputation, as you mentioned, of Africa as a golden uh, source of of learning and of literacy instead of this stereotype of the dark continent. And it resonates uh, perfectly in many ways with the with the podcast we just did at, at the African Studies Association with Fellow and Gom in Senegal and Mauritania, showing the similar, very high percentage of literacy uh, in Ajami, which uh, is just not recorded by UNESCO or others or by government. So, and this, as you show, it, it goes back uh, centuries. Exactly. And not, not only does it go back centuries, but in a conversation we were having earlier, with Amadou, you mentioned that there is evidence of a Jami uh, in the New World during the era of exactly. the Atlantic slave trade in Trinidad and Tobago. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, that's, you see, what, what is very intriguing is that even as late as 2010, Jackie Goody, we all know as a very respected anthropologist, he died just last year, 2015. And in one of his last book, 2010, he was saying that Africa south of Sahara was a region that was largely not known for literacy. And I was shocked that <laughs> if somebody of his status should be saying this in 2010, in spite of all that we have been able to establish over the years, of the centuries of large amount of scholarship in both real Arabic, and of course, even here, in one of the oldest autobiographies by Omar Said in North Carolina here was a slave from America, and uh, from uh, Senegal. And he started writing in good Arabic from 1890, even here in American, on the American soil. So and people will see, continue to, so, and that is kind of thing which actually have to encourage. And of course, the one you are talking about, the diasporan people, Trinidad and Tobago, on Brazil, many of the African slaves who were actually cultured people in Arabic letter writing, in, lecture, in, 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 in Islam knowledge, were here and they were communicating, corresponding in the language. And some of these are just coming on now. And a, a particular test I got recently from a colleague, uh, Nicolai Dubrovin from uh, St. Petersburg, showed a piece in Ajami, which is multilingual. That's Hausa, Fulfudi, and possibly Mandinka language. Perhaps by one of the soldiers who fought in the First World War or whatever, and I got a copy of that, and I was like, wow, so the diaspora, you also have diaspora, Ajami Arabic, and of course there will be a lot of collections of work in that regard, which nobody has actually bothered to, to find out at the moment. And, and to debunk these stereotypes about Africa as a dark, dark continent, and to open up still more of these uh, exciting new areas that you and fellow Ngom and Shamo Jeppe and others and John Hunwick have been trailblazing, um, the preservation of these materials is extremely important. And uh, uh, when I first met you, you were at a conference in Oxford and uh, you were then talking about digital projects. Uh, have you thoughts on, on where we're going with this? Uh, you mentioned earlier the need uh, to set priorities. And part of that, of course, is, is funding, resources, close liaison and listening to local communities to african governments and ministries have we are we getting the mix right and and where would you like to see what would you like to see us uh, digitizing in the future collectively i mean yeah all, all of us yeah. <laughs> I, I think the starting point will be to retrieve those materials that can be retrieved in the first instance i mean some of those damaged materials on microfilms and whatever uh, that, that would be the first step that I think, because it's my interest that the whole of University of Ibadan, the whole the University of Nigeria, has just one scanner 
that can digitize. And the last time I got there about a year ago, I was interested. In fact, the American Council, uh, Council General in Nigeria, I got him down to Ibaradia to see what can be done to assist. But that single scanner, when there was no power supply, there was also nothing that could be done. So what I'm appealing for now is that if there's a way you could actually get, let us even have a new, a fresh catalog of what do we actually have in stock. So from that one, you can then decide, okay, in order of priority, which works are the most endangered, and then you can start immediately to digitize those ones. The second thing will be to have a collaborative uh, sort of uh, program with universities where Arabic language or local languages have been taught to ensure that the students, either at graduate levels or whatever, encourage them to make those materials as object of study in their project. So that it's a way of keeping those things on board. So once you're able to do that, and the third thing is that curriculum development such that Ajami itself will be taught because it's a very, very, it's not an easy thing. It took me almost 10 years to decipher a 70 line poetry, or the, what I've called the oldest poetry in uh, Yoruba land, almost 10 years to decipher just 70 verses. Mm. I, I, it wasn't a, even the great grandson of the author himself died, died earlier this year. You couldn't make any headway out of it. So if there is a way of training through standardized orthography, so it will be easier even to decipher uh, the Ajami stuff. Because it might interest you now. You have Quran now in Ajami, Tafsir in Ajami. You even have prison notes that have been discovered to be in Ajami stuff. And of course, short stories. In fact, there is a particular institution in Nigeria in Lorraine where short story writing Ajami is being developed and among other uses of Ajami. And of course, you may want to know that when Raihan Bonke, the German evangelist, came to Nigeria for his crusade, he was using Ajami in the northern part of Nigeria to attract people. And that was what caused problem. Well, Professor Sani, we have to thank you for opening up these worlds of possibilities and, uh, and knowledge and for speaking with Africa past and present. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.